So we're still in the midst of celebrating Jesus, Christ child, his birth, Emmanuel, God with us. For the 12 days of Christmas, kind of in the home stretch, it ends this week. I mentioned last week that when the Christ child came to tabernacle with us, God was making a definitive divine beachhead in our fractured world. I'm going to stick to that. I still believe that to be very true. Jesus was and is the light shining in a very dark, dark place. When God made this beachhead, make no mistake, he was declaring all out war on the darkest recesses of the world, the flesh and the devil. We can't underestimate this. We can't. In response to Jesus' arrival, guess what? Darkness pushes back against not only Jesus, but Mary and Joseph too. The Holy Family, as they're called, were threatened from the very beginning. Even when the devil knows his time is short, he still will try everything in his power to spoil what God is doing. Still true in our day and age, same as it ever was. So he pushes back hard. That's what our gospel passage was all about today. That ensuing battle of good and evil, light and dark, it commences almost immediately after the three wise men leave and exit the picture. Herod enters in the picture and things go dark very quickly. This is part and parcel of the Christmas story. It's the part that doesn't get told, right? It's what happens after the manger scene, but it's still part of the story. So the devil won't take defeat lying down. Darkness seeks to overthrow and overpower the light. Wow, serious wind. It is comical, I have to say, that it's like, a, it's like a nice dead calm when I show up. I mean, by the time we get to worship, obviously, you know, linens are flying off the table. We've got wind noise. I mean, look at that. There's my mask. I'm going to need that later. Bear with me. We've sort of gotten used to rolling with it, haven't we? A bit. So our gospel passage, if it were in the Star Wars world... <laughs> It would be the Empire Strikes Back. That would be this passage. These early chapters in Matthew, when you get past the birth of Jesus, they bristle with such a palpable sense of danger and uncertainty. There's a certain, if you don't read ahead in the story, you know what's coming. There's this this pall of of gloom and doom that sort of permeates Jesus' early years. Now, many prophecies are fulfilled in this passage. Matthew points that out to us at key points. And they come about, those prophecies are fulfilled in and through great sorrow and tragedy. We can't read that as something that God approves of, gives a thumbs up to, sanctions, that's not it. Uh, It's more showing us that God takes the evils of the world, he does something redemptive with them and in spite of them. Matthew's really keen to point out those moments where the prophecy is fulfilled, right? Even from Jesus' birth, how some of these prophecies come to be. To borrow from Isaiah 53.3, Jesus proves to be the man of sorrows, I think, even from his birth. So it's not really true to say uh, Jesus sort of lived this life and the hardships really came when he began his ministry in his early 30s. No, his life was opposed from the beginning. Let me give you an example. I think we are certainly meant to glimpse how Jesus' early years parallel that of a young Moses in the book of Exodus. The baby Moses saved from Pharaoh's slaughter of the young males in Egypt. Like Moses, Jesus is another survivor who's going to go on to lead God's people to freedom. So here's how the story goes. 
An angel comes to Joseph in a dream, warns him of Herod the Great's plans to kill his newborn son. Under the cover of night, Joseph, Mary, Jesus, small baby boy, flee from their home in Bethlehem. And they do so with great haste. There's no sense of them waiting around. They go. God gives the word and they go. So God directs Joseph, take your family to Egypt to live until the danger is past. This is tremendously ironic. Finding safety in that former place of bondage and slavery in Israel's history. But it was a sensible choice as it turns out. Uh, Later in Israel's history, post-Exodus, Egypt was a place where people sought political asylum. The Jews did go there to seek safety. But the most important thing, Egypt is out of Herod's reach. That's the point. It's a safe haven in the midst of their exile. Herod, ever predictable, hearing of the birth of Jesus and having been a little bit outfoxed by the wise men, he is enraged and he takes action. Now, Herod's reputation in history is well documented as a pretty brutal ruler. He was ruthless. He was cruel, uh, paranoid, especially when he thought his reign was threatened or there were rivals in his midst, real or imagined. He would take action. Herod had three of his own sons killed, okay? as well as many others who he thought were conspiring against him. So lest we forget, Herod's a practicing Jew, and he's turning against his own people. And he does this again and again and again. So while this story uh, in our gospel, historians might see that as sort of a minor event, given Herod's violent past, he orders the massacre of all the young males, boys in and around Bethlehem. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. You've probably heard that phrase. He did this to his own people, his own people. And he did it to the most vulnerable and the most at risk of his own people, children, boys under two. So this horrific infanticide proves to fulfill Jeremiah 31, 15, which speaks of Rachel's sorrow over her own lost children. If you can recall that Old Testament story, I'm going to read you that section. This is verse 18 in our gospel reading. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, Rachel's story doesn't end in grief and loss. Jeremiah will go on to say that Rachel will find comfort and assurance because her lost children, the captives taken in exile, will one day return home. There is a faint light of hope here. Okay? So while the slaughter of the innocents is certainly unspeakably tragic, that sorrow will eventually be replaced by something greater, something bigger. Joy will come again to Bethlehem. A Messiah will come and will bring deliverance. Like Moses, this Messiah will return from a foreign land to save God's people. Right? So this is that the night is darkest just before the dawn. This is one of those moments. The Messiah lied to the world is going to redeem and restore what's been lost. This has always been God's specialty, to bring blessing and life out of death and tragedy. So Rachel's tears, she is an example here, are one day going to be transformed into joy and into laughter. Somehow God will do this. So as this madness is happening in and around Bethlehem, Jesus, Mary, Joseph are living in exile as refugees in Egypt. We don't know how long they were there precisely. Best estimate, three years and some change. So Jesus' youngest years, think about this, his youngest years 
were spent in exile as a refugee in a foreign land. Think about that. You ever think about that's the way Jesus is, some of those early formative years, that's how they were spent. But he was safe, as was his family. So they stay in Egypt. They remain there until Herod dies, about 4 B.C. And after that, another, an angel comes to appear to Joseph again in a dream to lead them back home to Israel. This fulfills another Old Testament prophecy. This is Hosea 11.1. 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. So God preserves Jesus' life just as he saved Israel so long ago. This is yet again God rescuing his people out of the wilderness. It is a retelling of the Exodus story in and through Jesus' life. Why is that? Well, God is beginning a new Exodus, this time for the life of the entire world, not just the people of Israel. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Fulfills that prophecy. But still, darkness pursues the young family. Still, they're not safe yet. Danger is still present. The family sets their sights on returning to their home in Bethlehem. Remember, that's where they came from. Only to discover that Archelaus, Herod's son, is now ruling over the Judean countryside. Bethlehem's part of that. He proves to be just as cruel as dear old dad does and just as much of a power monger as Herod the Great was. For example, later in Israel's history, Archelaus will order his troops to slaughter 3,000 people right in front of the temple in Jerusalem. Again, his own people. This is Archelaus. He's cut from the same cloth that Herod was. So Joseph is rightfully wary and afraid of Archelaus, and he is warned in yet another dream. So he heads for a very small town in Galilee called, guess what, uh, Nazareth. So he stays off the beaten path, very intentional, and he tries to fly under the radar while still staying sort of in that, uh, the loop of Jewish culture and in that geography. And they begin a new life there, there fulfilling a prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Even though the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem, which we know Jesus did. He was born there. He just didn't grow up there. He grew up in Nazareth. Now, this Nazareth, folks, small and forgettable. It is so obscure, you can't even find a mention of it in the Old Testament. Okay? It is small potatoes, if there ever were one. It is a tiny, little agricultural village of five, best guess, five to eight hundred people. Very small. Most Jews viewed Nazareth with a certain contempt because it was full of foreigners, Gentiles. I'm using that in the Old Testament sense, foreigners. They viewed it as not much better than a Samaritan village. So to be called a Nazarene was not a compliment, you know. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Remember that line? And yet, Nazareth is the place, the exact precise place, God chooses as an earthly home for his son, this unassuming and obscure farming village. God does not choose the lofty capital of Jerusalem, which would be sort of the obvious place if you're choosing an origin story for Israel's Messiah King, wouldn't it? Raise him up out of the capital. No, God doesn't do that. You know, come on, Lord, why not go for the, the sexy, attractive center of Jewish power and Culture. Why not do that? I mean, if you're working on your resume as a future Messiah, Messiah, you don't pick Nazareth. You just don't. That's not your hometown. That's not where you want to come from. And yet Jesus, and I think this is key, will come from the margins. 
Jesus will come from the margins, from lowly and humble and very forgettable, little old Nazareth. What place? Nazareth. Yep, that's right. You heard it right. He will spend some 30 years of his life in Nazareth, growing up there until he begins his ministry in earnest. Even though, again, settling in Nazareth is not the best way to build your messianic cred. But our Lord will come from where? The margins. Now, I more than suspect there's something for us to learn here. Certainly, like, to go where God calls, right? Rather than following the glitter and the gold. What's sexy, what's attractive, what the world values. There are more important things, there are more precious things than chasing after titles, positions of power, prestige, uh, securing a good station in society, good place in life. So it teaches us that we need to get low. When God calls us to get low, let's get low. It's the way of Jesus. And we need to look for God in the margins, how God loves to work in the margins. I think that's why he comes from there to remind us of that. In this entire story, I, mean, I hope you see this, there's danger and darkness at every turn. And it forces us to rethink our notions of the incarnation and the Christmas story, doesn't it? As I said before, it's not all peaceful manger scene. It's not all glory. That's the first part. There's the tragedy and violence that follows hot on the heels of it. That is part of the Christmas story, too. Danger and darkness pushing back. There's so many places, if you look at this, in this story, where it could have gone so terribly wrong. I mean, how many times has an angel warned Joseph? What if he blew that off and chose otherwise? What if he had not listened to those warnings? The stakes are uh, catastrophically high, wouldn't you say? No margin for error. There's incredible vulnerability here. Incredible. But thanks to God's protection, providence, and Joseph's listening ears and obedience, the story of the Savior of the world does not end in tragedy. Even though the darkness is pushing back very hard, the light continues to shine in the midst of tremendous calamity. Now, when we read these stories in Scripture, we have the benefit of hindsight, right? We know where it's going. We're like, yeah, 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 but, but it'll, be, it'll all work out okay. Uh, we know how the Lord takes evil and uh, what was meant for evil and turns it into good. We know that. But... When you and I are caught up in the throes and the tumults in our own lives of that darkness pushing back against us, it is not nearly as apparent, is it? The experience of fighting our way through darkness, holding on to the light that is Jesus right now can be really, really difficult. So let's put ourselves in Joseph, Mary, and Jesus' sandals. And let's imagine what these early years are like for this new family, okay? You've got a young father. You've got an even younger mother, probably a teenager. And you've got their youngest and only son fleeing for their lives. This family knew exile from their earliest days. Earliest days. What was it like to be a refugee family? They were for several years. How did they get along in Egypt? What was that like? What was it like for Joseph to try to care for his family, to provide, to provide for them their basic needs in a foreign land? Did they have any friends? Did they have any fellow countrymen to lean upon? Or were they alone? And there's just a lot of unanswered questions there, aren't there? And I'd love to know the details of their hasty departure of leaving their home in Bethlehem, which they don't return to. 
I'd love to know about that exile in Egypt. I'd love to know about them resettling in that backwoods town of Nazareth. I'd love to know what it was like to have hopes of returning to Bethlehem. They're home, and yet they don't. All of this at God's warning and God's bidding. Perhaps you can identify God delivering you from danger, calamity, and leading you to safety by strange means. Uh, That sounds like gospel to me. Get that later. We'll see how far it travels. It'll be a game. To borrow a phrase from one of my favorite bands over the Rhine, love is never far from danger. Love is never far from danger. How true that is in this gospel story. Now, don't you see this in your own life? When God is up to something very good, think of your own life right now. When God is up to something really good, doesn't the devil work all the harder to try and spoil it? Distract you, do anything he can to take you away from that. When the goodness of God is afoot, the devil, he just simply wastes no time. He's right there. Luther is famous for saying, well, God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. You'll hear me say that over and over. I really believe it is true. Love is never far from danger, right? Why is that? Scripture tells us because the devil wants to steal and kill and destroy. And often the world and the flesh cooperate in the devil's sabotage. Love is never far from danger. Don't you see this in your own life? When something good is happening, God's birthing something good, isn't Satan right there to try to undermine that, distract you from it, do anything he can to pour water on uh, that fire, that flame? Now, in our church, we've experienced a measure of this pushback, I think it's fair to say. 2020 has been marked by adversity in all quarters, everywhere. As God has been leading us to replant in East Charlotte, we've experienced our fair share of opposition, discouragement, grief, loss, and you better believe it, fatigue. Where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. Love is never far from danger. We've experienced that too. We know what it's like for God to give good gifts And for the devil to be there to try to spool, complicate, do anything he can to muck it up. But here's our hope, okay? This love in the midst of danger. This is Malcolm Muggeridge. Listen to this. It's precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming, when every recourse this world offers, moral as well as material, has been drawn on and explored with no effect. When in the shivering cold, every stick of wood has been thrown on the fire and in the gathering darkness, every glimmer of light has finally flickered out. It's then that Christ's hand reaches out, sure and firm. Then Christ's words bring their inexpressible comfort. Then his light shines brightest, abolishing the darkness forever. So when does Christ shine brightest? When we're at the end of our rope, right? No amount of darkness and danger can overcome the love of God, which is Jesus Christ. The darker it gets, the more severe that pushback, the brighter the light and the love of Jesus is. So when does Christ shine brightest? When we're at the end of our rope. Put another way, when we're at our most vulnerable. That is when Jesus shines brightest. 
Blessed are those who are at the end of their rope. I don't know if that's what Eugene Peterson says in the message translation, but I bet it's somewhere in the Beatitudes, something along those lines. Blessed are those who are at the end of their rope, for God shall be their help in times of trouble. And we are counting on that.